0: Well, I once heard a story about a man who somehow became convinced that he was dead. Um, So naturally, the logical thing to do if you discover that you're dead is go to the doctor, right? So that's what he did. He went to the doctor, and as he explained his condition to the doctor, the doctor responded by asking, well, have you ever seen a dead person bleed? And the man responded, you know, no, I haven't. I've never seen that. The doctor then asked, so would you agree that dead people don't bleed? And the man said, well, yeah, that makes sense. I reckon they can't bleed. And so the doctor took a needle and pricked the man's finger, and sure enough, drops of blood began to form on his finger, and the man, in wide-eyed amazement, looked at the doctor and said, well, I'll be. I guess dead people do bleed. (laughs) I'm often amazed by the sheer ridiculous nature of unbelief. So much of it is utterly nonsensical. I mean, just take the notion of evolution. We could pick from many, but just the notion of evolution as an example. We know and we can see that creation bears the undeniable imprint of its all-wise, all-powerful designer. We know that. Creation is brilliantly engineered in inscrutable detail, and all of it is declaring the wonders of the Lord. And as Paul even states in Romans 1, that God's attributes, power, and divine nature have been on display and clearly seen in creation such such that all men are utterly without excuse before God. No one can claim when they stand before the judgment that they just didn't know. They know. The knowledge of God is ultimately not really the problem in the human heart. The problem with humanity is that it vainly seeks to reject God. Humans seek to suppress the truth committed instead to their own unrighteousness. And of course, Romans 1 is not the only example where where Paul talks about that. Um, nor is evolution the only example. We can see this in many places in the scriptures, but one in particular would be the Gospels, where the Gospels are full of occasions when Jesus performed miracles that conclusively proved who he was. There was no legitimate question, and yet so many, including the bulk of the Jewish leaders, rejected him. They even accused him of Being a tool of the devil, condemned his association with with, uh, societal pariahs like tax gatherers and other sinners. They accused him of being a drunk and a glutton and ultimately murdered him. But Jesus in John 3 outlined the real issue, the real problem going on in the human heart. And the real issue has nothing to do with the evidence of the truth because the evidence is clear the real issue then is a moral issue it's an issue of the affections so jesus said in john chapter 319 in his discussion with nicodemus this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil So the reason then, according to the Lord, that the people reject him is that they love their sin. That is the reality that we see played out in front of us in the nation of Israel over and over again. As we began to see last week, the northern kingdom of Israel had under Ahab's leadership thrown themselves fully into Baal and Asherah worship, and as as Terry noted, Both of these idolatrous systems had at their heart a host of vile, sexually explicit and deviant practices. Baal was the storm god and the god of the Sidonians. As you remember, Ahab married Jezebel, who was the daughter of the king of Sidon, and she brought with her to Israel the worship practices of Baal, and the nation happily acquiesced. Given that Baal was supposedly the storm god, it was believed that rain would come when Baal became sexually excited, and so the worship practices involved many forms of sexual acts, the idea being that Baal was watching and would become excited and then produce rain. This situation brought the nation of Israel to a crisis point, and God decided to intervene. And he sent a man named Elijah. Well, last week, Terry showed a graphic and discussed the fact that in biblical history, there are only three relatively short periods in which which we see the presence of significant miracles. And if you remember from last week, the first period was with Moses and Joshua. And then the last was Jesus and the 12 apostles. Now, obviously, both of those—the first period with Moses and Joshua—had enormous significance, as well as Jesus and the apostles. Um, under Moses and Joshua, as you remember, uh, God was establishing the nation of Israel, and under or with Jesus and the apostles, Jesus was, of course, securing our salvation, but also establishing the church. So, two very, very important periods of history, and then the only other period where we find these significant miracles is that which we're studying now and will be over the course of the next several weeks. Now, I bring this up because I think it's very relevant to the story today. Uh, The presence and the point is that the presence of the miracles through this time period indicates that there is something very, very big going on. And there's some profoundly important lessons that God wants to highlight. And I think that, I think what God wanted to highlight during this miraculous period is openly declared in the section that we're going to look at today. Although we're going to see that God will continue to underscore those lessons uh, in the coming weeks. So looking at the passage for today, if, I was to nail down a theme in particular. I'm going to draw a little bit from Joshua here, but the initial theme here is choose today whom you will serve. In this passage, God declared publicly, decisively, unquestionably, without any possibility of misinterpretation, that there is only one true living God. I can't help but see the parallels between this passage and when Joshua spoke to the nation in Joshua twenty four fifteen, when he said choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served which were beyond the, the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land you are living but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. So in this story today God is going to force the people of Israel to make a choice. They can't sit in that sort of vacillating no man's land between two things where they know the truth, they know God, they know the commands and the in the law, but they were attracted to this other thing. And so they were sort of, as Moses is going, not Moses, sorry, Elijah is going to say, um, they were vacillating in between those two things. But God is going to say no more. It's time for a decision. So, but before we dive into the story today, there is one other point that I think is so important to consider as we look at what's going on. And so I'm going to talk just briefly here about this key historical dynamic in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, uh, the nations around Israel, and, and really throughout the known world at that time, were overwhelmingly polytheistic. That means that they believed in many different gods. They believed, or, and then... Interestingly, they viewed the events of nations rising and falling as being less about human leaders and armies and so on, and more about whose God was the strongest God and the greatest God. Well, as you know, God is supremely vigilant about his glory, and he's rightfully angered by the suggestion that there is anything or anyone greater than he is. So Isaiah 48, 11, he says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. So We see this played out in multiple ways throughout the Old Testament. That there are these pretenders that rise up that people want to claim are greater than God. And God can't allow that. He can't abide by that, at least not for long. Uh, You can see, for example, in the story of the Exodus, there are many things that God was accomplishing through those events of the Exodus, including the establishment of his chosen people as their own nation. But if you look at the plagues that were brought against the Egyptians, It was a systematic denunciation and humiliation of the so-called gods that the Egyptians served. Just one example was the Egyptians served Ra, who they believed to be the sun god, but what was one of the plagues? Darkness, right? Um, And it was a profound, palpable darkness that they could even feel, but it was so profound that no light sources worked at all except where the israelites were there is only one god and he rules over the sun and not only does he rule over the sun but he controls light itself something that ra could never do that was the lesson ra is nothing God was putting himself on display as the only true living God. So then fast forward from there, 575 years, and what do we find? Under Ahab and Jezebel, the nation had adopted a foreign false god and were giving themselves fully to worshiping it in complete and open rebellion against God's law. The people that God had called out of Egypt and established as a nation and fed and protected and taught and given his law were now rejecting him and his law, instead bowing to a false God, suggesting that Baal was greater than Yahweh, that Baal controlled the rain and not God. Well, that's something that God cannot stand for long. So Israel had reached a crisis point. And so God began to act, to call the nation back to repentance. So how did it start? We covered it last week. What happened? Elijah went to Ahab and said, guess what? It's not going to rain. It's not going to rain for years. Um... And he says specifically, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Well, how about that? All those who worship Baal, who ridiculously suggest that he controlled the rain are dead wrong and God was going to prove it. God alone is in control and Baal is nothing which gives us really, I think, a a secondary theme or a second theme, is that God alone is sovereign and in control and all other so-called gods are nothing. That's the lesson that resounds forth from the passage that we're going to look at today. So let's jump into that passage, and we'll begin by looking at 1 Kings 18. And so we're going to see initially that Elijah meets an interesting man uh, by the name of Obadiah so if we look here at the first part we're going to see in verses 1 and 2 that God has some instructions for Elijah something that he wants him to go do so verse 1 says now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. So here in the passage, we see God called Elijah to go to Ahab, and then God would send the rain. Now, here it specifically mentions that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. We know, actually, from the book of James that it was actually, by this point, three-and-a-half years without rain. And remember, not only was there no rain, but there was also no dew. Uh, Dew was an important part of Israeli horticulture, uh, Jewish horticulture, and and something that was depended on in the periods of time where there was a lot less rain during certain seasons. So, But can you imagine what would happen if there was no rain in the U.S. for three-and-a-half years? Uh, That would create a profound famine. However, we have access to modern technology and underground aquifers and the equipment to drill and get into those extremely deep waters and bring it up. But they didn't have that back then. They were absolutely reliant upon much more shallow wells and other types of naturally occurring water sources. So it would be actually like us having no rain and no electricity for three and a half years. The impact would be overwhelming. It would be severe. But what we see here is that really in an expression of mercy and grace, God determined that it was time to turn the faucet back on, so to speak. And in the meantime, he's also going to use the situation to teach this critical lesson so we see in the second part of verse 2 where it says now the famine was severe in Samaria and this just points to the devastating conditions that were there specifically in the city of Samaria Um, but it was probably likely a reference to the surrounding area as well and we know that it wasn't just Samaria that was impacted it was all of the northern kingdom so Samaria where it's just where the king was and you know if there's ever anybody that can get food it's usually going to be the king but it was so bad there that they were suffering. Um, We're actually going to see here in uh, a little bit that in verse 5 they had run out of food or sufficient food for the horses and mules and needed to find alternatives otherwise they would have had to thin out the cattle herds. So cattle would have been used primarily for food, while horses and mules were primarily work animals, intending to help with a variety of things, from plowing to transformation and many other elements. Um, But they were needing to make the decision to either lose some of the meat animals, which they didn't want to do given the famine, or find food for the horses and mules. In some, the famine had reached a level of desperation where it was the last opportunity to save some of the livestock, and even the king, we'll see, is going to get involved to help with that endeavor. So devastating conditions there in Samaria. So then we're going to see an introduction to God's faithful servant, Obadiah. Picking it up in verse 3, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. So as the story goes here, in response to the desperate situation ahab called his royal official obadiah who had been put in charge of all of his household and he calls them as we calls him as we will see to craft a strategy for how they were going to minimize the loss of animals as they dealt with the food shortage so the author here takes the opportunity to introduce us though to this interesting character obadiah and by the way, just side note, this is almost certainly not the prophet Obadiah who wrote, uh, one of the minor f- prophets that wrote a book by his name. Um, so this is not that guy. Um, but Obadiah was likely a high royal official. Uh, the first thing that we see is that Obadiah was placed in charge over the household of Ahab. Now, we shouldn't see this as just a simple house manager, although Certainly that would have been included. But based on the upcoming conversation, Obadiah was also in charge of the care of the animals. So he would have been over everything from household operations to the farming and ranching operations. This would have been a highly prestigious role and almost certainly considered as a royal official or a royal title. It would have been a highly, highly trusted position. You don't just put anybody in charge, if you're the king, in charge of your whole household, your farm, ranch, all of that. So this was a highly trusted position. And Obadiah held the trust of Ahab, despite the fact that Obadiah himself was a devout man of God. That's surprising. Uh, He was somehow able to command the respect of the king and other high officials while maintaining his commitment to the Lord without compromise. And as we'll see, he was even doing something against or, or contrary to the commands of Ahab and the efforts of Jezebel. We see as well that he was a devoted father of, or, sorry, follower of the Lord. Um, he, we're told here that Obadiah was one who feared the Lord greatly. Now that's significant. Uh, the author wanted to understand us to understand that Obadiah's fear of the Lord was not shallow but it permeated to his very core. We see in the this phrase "The fear of the Lord uh when we consider that phrase the fear of the Lord uh we shouldn't think of it as just being afraid of God, although of course there's a sense in which that's true and appropriate. But the definition that I taught my boys growing up is Based on how this phrase the fear of the Lord is defined and used in the book of Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is a right understanding of who God is and reverential submission to his authority. So the fear of the Lord in Proverbs is associated with a proper knowledge of God, knowing his word, hating sin, walking in obedience to God, to just to name a few. So those were the things that were at the core of Obadiah, and that he was doing well. So his fear of the Lord even included the courageous and treasonous act of preserving the lives of a hundred prophets, hiding them from Jezebel, whose hatred of God resulted in her killing God's servants. So this is interesting. God here preserved the lives of a hundred of his faithful prophets when Jezebel was on the warpath against them, using a faithful man living right under her nose. And then at great risk to himself, he continued to provide for them during a severe famine. That could not have been easy. A hundred people when there's a desperate famine going on and he was taking care of it. Largely, uh, it's probably from his own pocket. That He was doing this so we can see that his commitment to the Lord was not merely academic, but it was real and it motivated him to act when there were things that were absolutely wrong going on. Now, how many stories like that have we heard? God often has placed people in key strategic places, even in evil regimes to accomplish his purposes, and in many cases uses those people to protect his people. Think of Joseph, or Daniel, or Esther, or even Nehemiah. Makes me thankful to think that even in our corrupt, evil government, that there are still a few who truly fear the Lord. And we need to be in prayer for them, um, because it may very well be that God has brought them to those positions for just a time like this uh, to help and preserve his people. So that's Obadiah. Um, Next, we're going to see Ahab's strategy for dealing with the famine there in verses 5 and 6. So Ahab had already called Obadiah to him. So verse 5, then Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and all the valleys, and perhaps we will find grass. Grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. So I mentioned this already, but the point here is that Ahab devised a strategy with Obadiah to try and avoid the livestock losses, and so they determined to go out and look for a suitable place where they could bring the horses and mules so they could survive. Um, The fact that Ahab himself participates in this, where he's decided, you know what, I'm going to go help look too, um, just illustrates the desperation of the situation. I mean, in this case, the highest priority for the king was to go and find grass for the horses and mules. So, again, highlights that desperation. So, verse 7, we'll see that Obadiah meets Elijah says, now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, Elijah, my master? And he said to him, It is I. Go and say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. And as Obadiah proceeded to go out following the plan that they had devised, he encountered and recognized Elijah. And so then Elijah gives him a task to go back to Ahab and announce that elijah was there now obadiah doesn't like that (laughs) Um, so we're going to see in verses 9 through 14 and i'm actually not going to read this just for the sake of time but i'm going to jump into it a little bit and just explain what was going on but uh what we i think we can see is that obadiah's protest was understandable Um, ahab and jezebel had searched high and low for elijah And anyone that returned to Ahab empty-handed had to provide some kind of official certification from the rulers of the nation or kingdom. They went to ensure or to state from those officials that Elijah truly wasn't there. The inference was that if they didn't do that, they would be killed. And so Obadiah was concerned that if he went and announced that Elijah was there, And then then Elijah would just disappear again. And then Obadiah would be in big trouble. And further, it seems like that Elijah was probably right there. Uh, Obadiah had just left. Um, But Obadiah, I'm sorry, Elijah was right there, probably on the king's property. So which Obadiah was responsible for. So imagine that Obadiah seems to have been concerned that if Elijah was on the property, he was responsible to manage that he could be implicated as someone who is assisting Elijah or was at the very least negligent and not knowing that Elijah was around. Now, I think we should see here that Obadiah was potentially not just concerned for himself because he brought up the situation of the hundred prophets that were being hidden And so it could be that he understood that if he was killed, then the prophets whom he had hidden and provided for could also die. Um, So we're not sure exactly on on all of that, but whatever whatever was going on, Obadiah did not want to relay uh, the message to Ahab that here's Elijah, he's right here. And so in verse 15, Elijah reassured Obadiah and said, Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now, looking at Obadiah's protest and all, do you think that Obadiah might be one of those people that takes a situation and thinks the worst about it when it's really not a big deal? I don't know anybody like that. Now, in truth, that's often me, but here uh, Elijah reassured Obadiah and, um, that he wasn't going to disappear and that he would be meeting with Ahab that day. Again, the fact that Elijah expected to meet with Ahab that same day and, and even the use of the word here when he says go tell, Elijah, go tell Ahab that Elijah is here suggests that Elijah was very close by and, and likely even on the king's property. So... We'll move to the next section here, uh, which is really the showdown on Mount Carmel. And so it begins with this meeting that Elijah has with Ahab. So verse 17 says, when Ahab saw Elijah and Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have because you have forsaken the Commandments of the Lord and who followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So uh, you see here the initial greeting from Ahab to Elijah. Is, he calls him the Troubler of Israel. But then Elijah pronounced against Ahab and, and turned that around and said, no, actually, it is you who are the troubler of Israel. And Elijah made a pronouncement of two key sins that Ahab was was accused of. Um, so one of them was that it was a rejection of the Mosaic law. And then secondly, was following the Baals. And so Elijah then proposed a big meeting on Mount Carmel that would include all of the key leaders of Israel, as well as the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Now, it may be a little surprising that Ahab went along with this, especially given the famine and all of that. I could see Ahab saying, now, why on earth would I do that? Um, Don't you see we're in this desperate situation? So I suspect that Elijah explained that the Lord was about to send rain. Um, which Ahab may have then been, been thinking, you know what, I'll try anything at this point. So Ahab complied and called all of Israel up to Mount Carmel. Now, why Mount Carmel? We, so this would have been a fair distance north of Samaria on the edge of Galilee. So it's, uh, I have three circles here on the map. It's the one up on the coast, uh, the farthest north there. Um but much of Israel is marked by the central mountain range that runs from north to south. But there is this one mountain range, and you you can kind of see that in here, um, but there's this one mountain range that runs a little bit more east to west, um, and that's the that is where Mount Carmel sits. So Mount Carmel itself stands about eighteen hundred feet above sea level and from the top of it, you can see into the Mediterranean, to the east. Um, you could see to the west, lower Galilee. You could see to the south, the coastal plains. Um, so it's also possible and, and maybe even probable in this situation that Mount Carmel marked the boundary point between Israel and the kingdom of Sidon, which would make, cause this to make sense as a location. So uh, it's a high point on the border between two nations who were worshiping Baal. And so just a few pictures here. Um, This is a picture uh, there in the background that you can see Mount Carmel. By the way, Mount Carmel is actually a little bit more of a mountain range, not just a single peak, but there is a peak that exists. Um, So this is looking down uh, into the lower Galilee area. So you can see, it's, you, you can see pretty far from up there on Mount Carmel. Uh, this picture right here is the traditional site where the events that we're going to look at supposedly took place. We can't be sure, uh, but there's a lot of ways that it does make sense uh, there on that big flat spot because there was a lot of people that were there. So that this could be the correct spot. And this is just another picture in that area. Just shows it was forested. It was pretty. Um, when there was rain, it would be green. Um, so it's, it's really a nice place to be. So that was Mount Carmel. And what we're going to see here is that Elijah is going to address the people and make a proposition, um, ultimately calling on them to choose who they would serve. So picking it up in verse 21, we're going to see Elijah's initial call to the people which is basically just choose. So verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer a word. And I think this is really the key lesson of the section or key to the lesson of this section. Uh, I mentioned earlier about Joshua saying, choose this day who you will serve. Elijah is essentially saying the same thing. Um, In this case, he accused them of vacillating in a kind of no man's land between serving the Lord and serving Baal. And he was calling on them to make a decision. Now, I think... Elijah called on them, I think had Elijah called on them to make the same decision three and a half years prior, the people probably would have laughed at him and run him out of town or killed him. But in a sense, he was saying, now take a good hard look at the evidence. Look at what's going on around you. Um, God had already demonstrated for the past three and a half years, the complete impotence of the fake God Baal. But apparently that wasn't enough for the people. So Elijah proposed a test to determine who is the one true God. So in verse 22, it says, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood and put no fire under it. Then I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I, will put no, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, oh, that's a good idea. Seems like a pretty straightforward test, right? And make no mistake here, Elijah was absolutely calling out Baal. And setting up this contest between God and this ridiculous pretender, Baal. Baal was usually pictured holding a lightning bolt, symbolizing his power over the weather. Uh, In fact, there's even a a stone that they uncovered back in, I think, 1932, where that is shown. Baal is shown holding a, a staff that's a lightning bolt. So, stands to reason... If he could control the lightning, then logically it shouldn't be any issue for him to strike the altar and burn up the sacrifice. And Elijah here was also showing himself to be at a significant disadvantage. He was saying, look, there's only one of me and there's 450 of those other guys. You know, um, surely the one true God would be more compelled to act if there were a lot of people calling on him to act. Um, So all that. There, the people of Israel agreed that this would be a good test. So we'll jump in here to see how that unfolds. So again, looking back to what Elijah is calling them to do is to choose. So option one, the first participant is Baal. And so what we'll see here is they start by preparation and prayer. So verse 25 says so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many call on the name of the Lord your God or of of your God and put no fire under it and they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying O Baal answer us but there was no voice and no one answered And they leaped about the altar, which they had made. So can you just see that? 450 men calling out to a God that doesn't exist, jumping around, hoping to get the attention of no one. And they kept going on like this for a few hours from morning until noon. But as we see, nothing happened. So Elijah comes out and begins to mock them. Verse 27 came about at noon, um, so they'd already been at this for potentially three hours, but it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he's a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So this is kind of funny, right? Um, These priests are already probably exhausted by this point from all of their activity and jumping around. And then Elijah starts up with the trash talk. Um, Isn't Baal a god? Shouldn't he hear you? Maybe he's just too busy thinking. Or maybe he's in the bathroom. And I'm not kidding, that's actually what Elijah meant. Maybe he's just on vacation, or maybe he's asleep. Well, that got them going, and so for another three hours, that just um, caused them to move into an even greater frenzy, and they started cutting themselves, causing the blood to gush out. Unfortunately, the end of verse 29 gives us the conclusion, but there was no voice, No one answered, and no one paid attention. Complete fail. Then we move to the second option, who is God himself. So verse 30 says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. So after the failure of Baal's prophets to accomplish anything, Elijah here began the work of preparation for his sacrifice. So he built the altar in accordance with the Old Testament law. Set the wood and the pieces of ox on it, and then to make it even more difficult, he dug a trench around it, and then ordered. And by the way, that trench would hold somewhere between six and ten gallons of water. We're not totally sure, but but to make it even more difficult, uh, Elijah ordered that the people would dump enough water on the altar to completely soak it and fill up the trench. So it would actually be difficult, given this situation, for a standard lightning bolt to even light the altar. Um, Of course, this is no big deal for God. This is a walk in the park. So then Elijah prays. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Elijah didn't run around the altar. He didn't jump up and down. He didn't cut himself. He didn't yell and scream. He just prayed a simple prayer with one primary request that God would demonstrate that he alone was God. And God was about to provide an unmistakable answer. Verse 38 is God's fiery answer. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So take that, Baal. God doesn't just use a basic lightning bolt, but seems to be a consuming fire that easily burned the whole offering, wood, altar, the stones, and even the dust. Last I checked, stones aren't even flammable. So you get the idea that after this, the only thing left was a smoking crater where the altar used to be. Not only did God answer, but he answered with a stunning demonstration of devastating but controlled power. Only God can do that. What was the people's response? We see that in verse, beginning in verse 39. <clears throat> there was this resounding collective response where it says, when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So the response of the people to this demonstration is appropriate. They fell on their faces before God and affirmed the truth repeatedly that God alone was God in Israel and everywhere. Then Elijah called on them to make an exclusive choice. Verse 40 Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal and do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them back to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah began with the mess. So I'm sorry, Elijah here began with this message to the people uh, to stop vacillating and follow God or make a choice, either follow God or follow Baal. We saw that in the beginning. And then here they just affirmed that it was indeed the Lord that was God, and so Elijah calls on them to act, to eliminate the false prophets from among their midst. And the people here again responded and grabbed every last one of them. Not one escaped. They hauled them down to the mount down the mountain to the brook that was there, and Elijah killed them all. And so I I think we can see here that Elijah called on them to take radical action to eliminate the temptations and opportunities for sin. And the people here responded. So what we see here with the people, at least initially, is a very positive response. This is what God wanted to accomplish by bringing Elijah. They got the message and reacted to it appropriately, even taking serious steps institute the change that they were called to institute. And as a result, as we'll see, God began to bless them once again by sending the rain. And so this next part here, uh, there's going to be a heavy rain that comes. I'm not going to read all the detail here, but what we see is that Elijah prays for rain. Uh, and he, he tells Ahab first to go up and prepare Uh, go up and and eat. Really, the idea is probably to get prepared to go back down the mountain. Um, And then we see Elijah praying. He sends a servant to go look at the sea seven times. And then finally, there's this little tiny black cloud that appears. And before long, the deluge comes. So verse 45 says, uh, in a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And, Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and out ran Ahab to Jezreel. So where is a place you don't want to be during a storm? Up on a mountain, right? So it was important that they get out of there. They needed to leave the mountain. And in this case, they were heading for the valley town of Jezreel, which was likely a secondary capital for Ahab. Uh, Because he had a palace there, as well as in Samaria. Now, when I read this verse 46, I can't help but think it's kind of funny. Uh, For some reason, I have this picture in my mind of a soaking wet and sullen Ahab getting bounced around awkwardly in his chariot as they hurriedly make their way down the mountain. And he looks over and sees Elijah overtaking them, full out sprinting down the mountain. (laughs) That's got to be something funny to see. Now, it's possible that this was actually an act of service to Ahab uh, because it was customary for kings to have runners to go ahead of them to announce their coming. And so if that was the case, then it could have been an encouragement for Ahab to follow the Lord, um, making it clear that Elijah was there to help him. And so I, I think that's likely what was going on there. And again, just an expression of grace, the grace of God to ahab uh, demonstrating that if ahab would follow the lead of the people in this situation and repent and turn to the lord that the lord was there ready ready and willing and able to help so it's a great expression so uh, about the greatness of our lord well there's a few lessons that i just want us to contend or to consider from this um Number one, the the key lesson, choose this day whom you will serve. Now, obviously, for those that may not be believers that haven't come to the point where that choice is made, that choice extends to today, but there may not be a tomorrow. So choose today whom you will serve. And then for us as believers, we often have the opportunity to make this same choice every day. Um, we can choose if we're going to serve and obey the Lord or serve some worthless substitute. A second lesson that this teaches us is that God is in complete sovereign control over creation, governments, where he has placed us, and anything and everything else. And there's incredible comfort to that. God has a plan. Nothing will thwart it. No matter, what se- no matter how dark the days seem to be, God will be victorious in the end. Uh, I think this episode is a an extraordinary demonstration of God's grace, patience, and love. If we just think about this, um, the northern tribes of Israel, God could have just dismissed them and destroyed them as a result of their sin, but it, he didn't. Instead, He sent a uniquely powerful prophet with a special message that God was going to miraculously confirm. He he did this to call his people back to repentance. And we will see him do this, calling his people back to repentance over and over again, prophet after prophet after prophet. And, And what's interesting is that while clearly Elijah had some impact, His impact was ultimately short-lived, but it doesn't take away from the fact that God was, in a sense, getting out his megaphone in the person of Elijah to call his people back to repentance in a profound and powerful way. We should be amazed by that. That's amazing. Had God had not written off his people, Israel, by this point. This was an expression of God, in a sense, pulling out all the stops, doing everything possible to call them back to the proper and true worship of him. And those that rejected it are absolutely without excuse. Another point here, just briefly, um, although Elijah was the greatest prophet since Moses, his impact was really only moderate and short-lived, um, so just as a reminder that our goal as God's people is to serve him faithfully where we are and not get hung up on the results. And then lastly, um, we should be amazed. I'm sorry, it's that God is passionate about his glory and he will not share his glory with another and he will be exalted. And that's a great reality and it's one that we look forward to seeing him fulfill in the future. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word and for the things that it teaches us. We pray that you would cause these things um, to reverberate in our minds and hearts. Teach us the things that you want us to discover, that you, want us to, that you want to reemphasize in our own hearts. And we pray that you would help us to be changed into the image of your son as a result. And we just thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.